The scripture for Pastor John's sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, arose and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Instead of false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There are three questions now in this text I want to try to answer. The first one comes out of verse 14, where these false witnesses are saying, this Jesus will destroy this place, this temple in Jerusalem, and will change the customs which Moses delivered. My first question is, did Jesus say that? Did Jesus teach that? I want to go back and ask, did Jesus say things like, I will destroy the temple? Question number two, if he did, and I think he did, did Stephen mean the same thing that he meant? Was Stephen going on repeating the same thing Jesus was saying, or was he saying something different? And the reason I ask that is because there is a difference in this text as we see it between that and what Jesus said in the Gospels. I'll point that out in a few minutes. And my third question is, since Luke calls these witnesses false witnesses, in what sense were they false if, in fact, Jesus really did say, I will destroy the temple? If Luke or uh, Stephen really did go around saying, I'm going to destroy or Jesus is going to destroy this temple, how, how were the witnesses then false witnesses? Those are my three questions. Now, before we get into those three, let me ask sort of an introductory application question, whether, namely, this makes any difference to you. And I can imagine a certain emotional state and coming from a certain conflict at home this morning or a horrible experience this week or something that's so foreign to Jerusalem in the temple that you might feel inside right now, good night, who cares about the temple? My life is falling apart or something to that effect. Now, before you make that quick judgment about whether or not what we're about to do here is relevant for you, let me make three observations. Number one, Stephen died for what I'm about to tell you. And he didn't just die accidentally. He chose it. He could see it coming. He saw it in their eyes and the grinding of their teeth. He could have kept quiet when they arrested him and they ask him to give an account and he makes this speech and he comes to the end and he says the most incendiary thing he could possibly say about the temple at the end of chapter 7. He chose to be killed. Why? What is it about this issue of the temple that makes a man willing to die for it? Observation number two. The Jews were willing to kill for it. 
They were so threatened by what this truth is that when it started to be made clear, they couldn't stand it. They just raged, threw him out, stoned him to get rid of it. They would rather kill a good man than let this truth spread. And the third observation that suggests this is vital, relevant, and at the center of everybody's Christian life is the fact that Luke, who tells the story here, when given an opportunity to record Stephen's defense, gives him more space than any speech in the whole book. Longer than any of Paul's sermons, longer than any of Peter's sermons, Luke judged this issue big. Why? Now, those are just three observations I hope to win a hearing. Say, all right, I understand that the temple seems a long time ago, that whether it was destroyed doesn't really seem to relate to my job or my marriage or my kids or my health. Look, it does. Hang on. It really does. So back to the questions. In fact, I think I'd just like to stop and pray here so that it's not just my words drawing you in. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. So let's ask God to come. Father, I've tried just briefly now to show that what we're about to talk about in the destruction of the temple was worthy of the, the man Stephen's choosing to die. And it was so threatening and dangerous that some leaders killed to avoid it. And it was worth the longest message in the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come now and arrest the hearts in this room. Hold them fast, I pray. Speak to them and be our teacher now and meet our needs. Lord, the needs in this room are are a thousand. And you can meet every one of them. You can miraculously cause what happens in these next minutes as well as what has happened to touch people where they have need. And I ask that you do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Question number one. Did Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and build it again in three days? Three steps in coming to an answer. The first step is to go back to the trial. Matthew 27 and Mark Mark 14. No, it's Matthew 26, verse 61. The uh, false witnesses have gotten together again. And here's what they say, pointing at Jesus. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And when the high priest stood back and looked at Jesus and said, well, what do you say to this? He didn't make any reply. Just let it stand. Go forward a few hours now. He's hanging on the cross, suffering, and he's being mocked by the passers-by. And here are the words some of them are using in Matthew 27:40. You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So even the crowds had this in their head. Jesus had said something like this. Now, thirdly, John chapter 2, verse 19. Here's the place where we get the exact statement that Jesus said, at least one of them. I suspect he said it more often. But John 2.19, he has just moved through the temple with a whip. He's driven out the sellers, and uh, the Jews are angry at him, and they say, what sign do you do that you're able to do this kind of thing? 
You have a right to drive sellers out. What sign do you do? And here's his answer in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus said that. Now, their answer was, it took 46 years to build this building. You're going to build it again in three days? And he doesn't say any more. But John, the writer of the gospel, inserts these words. He spoke of the temple of his body. Hmm. Now, in the actual words of John 2.19, Jesus says, you destroyed the temple and I will build it in three days. Whereas his accusers had been saying, he said, I will destroy the temple. Which did he say? Or did he say both? I think he said both because of this. We know very clearly now from what John said that the destroying of the temple is the death of Jesus. We also know from John 10, 18 no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it again. Therefore, if Jesus lays down his life, and the laying down of his life is the destruction of the temple, he destroyed the temple. As well as the Roman soldiers, and Pilate, and the Jews who cried, crucify him. He gave himself up to destruction. So my answer to the first question is, yes, Jesus said... I will destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And he said it probably in various forms and various ways. Now, the, the key question is, what in the world did he mean? Did he merely mean, as John uh, hints, I'm going to die willingly and I'm going to be raised again. That's all. That's all it means. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. If that's all he meant, why did he use the image temple? And worse, why did he walk into the temple and use words that he knew everybody would misunderstand? Why did he go into the temple, stand up and say, destroy this temple? And he probably didn't point like this. He just said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. What do you expect him to understand? Now, here's what I think Jesus meant. I think Jesus meant, if you destroy this temple, I'll destroy that temple. Or make it even clearer. In the destruction of this temple, that temple comes down. If I die, this temple dies. The whole system dies when I die. The sacrifices die. The priesthood dies. The glory no longer is focused on this building, but on me. I become the sacrifice. I'm the high priest. I am the Shekinah glory from this day forward. If you kill me, I'll rise. I'll be the temple. And this one is done for. That's what I think Jesus meant. And it's a glorious truth. It's a glorious truth. You don't have to make any more pilgrimages. You don't have to move one muscle to get sins forgiven, a priesthood with God, and the presence of His glory. That's what happened in the temple. The whole sacrificial system by which sins were forgiven, 
the whole priesthood by which we had intercessors and advocates with God. And then periodically the coming down of the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. It's all gone in Jesus. That's what happened when the curtain was split and Jesus died. The curtain split, meaning this building is coming down. The walls are falling. Everything in it is crumbling. That's the meaning of I will destroy this temple, this temple, that temple. See the connection now? Does that make sense? When this temple, my body, is slain, it becomes the sacrifice which ends all sacrifices. Get it now? I become the interceding priest which ends the whole priesthood. I become the place on which the Shekinah glory rests so that no longer is it bound to any one geographic location. It is over. The temple is done for. It's a glorious, glorious truth. In fact, I found this passage. I'm so glad the Lord directed me to this last night in Revelation 21. Such a beautiful confirmation of what I was developing in my mind as I meditated on these things. Listen to this word. Here's a glimpse of heaven now that John has in Revelation 21:22. He says, I saw no temple in the city. Why not? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That's the temple. And the city has no need of sun. Why? For the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And I said, oh, wow. That's so exciting when you're on a track of interpretation, you know, because you see text and then you stumble onto one that just seems to fit so perfectly with it. There will be no temple because Christ is the temple. The Lord of glory is the temple, the sacrifice, the priesthood, the Shekinah location is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In dying for sin and rising again, he becomes our priest, our Passover lamb and our glory. When I die, this temple is finished. Yes, my answer to the first question is yes. Jesus said, I will destroy this temple. And he meant both his body and by means of his body, the Jewish place of worship. Question number two. Did Stephen mean the same thing when Stephen carried on this teaching and preached it in Jerusalem? Was he saying something different or the same? Now, the reason I even pose that question is because as I read verse 14, I hear something different. And so I had to stop and meditate until I could see how it fit together. Now, see if you hear what's different. Verse 14, we have heard him say, this is about Stephen. We have heard Stephen say that this Jesus will destroy this place. And that's that will threw me off. So Stephen was going around saying, Jesus is going to destroy this place. Now, you see how different that is from what Jesus said? Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days. It's over. It's up again. And here's Stephen walking around saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I said, well, wait a minute. It already happened. 
Took three days to do it. It came down, it went up, it's over. The new temple is up. What it, what, is there a conflict here or do these fit? And I, I think we'd all probably come up with the same solution here. Here's mine. Jesus meant when he said, in three days I'll destroy it and erect one not made with hands. He meant the basis and foundation of the whole system of the temple is done away with just like that when I die and rise again. The sacrifices are no longer valid. The priesthood is no longer needed. The glory is no longer attached to that place. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the high priest. I am the place where the glory of God dwells bodily. The foundation is gone. But when you remove or do you destroy or explode a foundation, it may take a while for the walls to go tumbling down. And that's what was happening in Stephen's ministry. What Stephen was doing, I think, is declaring just what I said. He was walking around saying, don't you understand from the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes and is, according to Isaiah 53, the final decisive sacrifice for sins, no longer do you need to sacrifice animals and the whole priesthood is not necessary and he is the Lord of glory because he was raised to the God's right hand. Don't you all see the implication of that? I tell you, this temple's coming down. Is coming down. So I don't think there was any conflict. In fact, I saw one verse from last week's text in a remarkably new light. Verse 7. Last week I, I said that the reason Luke recorded the last phrase of verse 7, and many or a great crowd of priests became obedient to the faith, I said The reason for that was to show us that if the church solves its problems in a humble and loving and faithful way that honors widows and honors the word, God will give new breakthroughs. I still think that's true, but I see a whole new light on this now. The priests were turning to Christ and and Luke reports that just before he reports this, this Stephen fellow who's going around talking about the destruction of the temple. I say, oh, I see. He's really making it with the priests. He's walking into the temple, this utterly risk-taking, crazy fellow, shining like an angel, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, and he walks in among the priests and he preaches the destruction of the temple and convinces them they're out of a job. And hundreds are saying, that really does fit with Isaiah 53. That really makes sense. We do now have one priest. If Christ has died for sins once for all, if he now has an eternal priesthood in heaven to make intercession for many, if God has glorified him at his right hands, we're out of a job. This is great. This is wonderful. Nobody has to come to us anymore. Nobody has to trek to Jerusalem anymore. Nobody has to bring animals in here anymore. We'll get another job. We'll preach. We'll preach Jesus. I think that's what was happening in Stephen's ministry. And that was absolutely threatening. I mean, you just can imagine that if you weren't persuaded of that and your livelihood was the priesthood, there were 8,000 priests in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. You could get yourself killed talking good news like that. 
So I don't think there was any conflict between Stephen and Jesus because of this will destroy in verse 14. All Stephen meant was what he decisively accomplished in pulling the rug out from under the system. I'm now accomplishing by pushing the wall over. Last question. Does Luke agree that the apostles and Stephen should have been and were changing the Mosaic customs? How does Luke feel about this, the inspired writer of this story? The reason I ask that is because in verse uh, 13, Luke says that the witnesses are false witnesses. And I'm sort of preaching as though what they said was exactly right, you know, that Jesus and Stephen did say that they're going to destroy the temple. And they did say that Mosaic customs would be changed. How, if that's true, then how are the witnesses false? It sounds like they're true. I think the answer is not complicated. I think they are giving a false twist to a true statement. A false twist to a true statement. But now let me illustrate by backing up and showing you that Luke does in fact know that the ministry of the apostles is overturning and changing Mosaic customs. Let me give you two illustrations. Chapter 15, this huge controversy in the book of Acts over circumcision and whether these new Gentile converts who were not circumcised needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Listen to the wording of Acts 15.1, where Luke records a certain uh, party saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now, note that phrase. See, that's the same phrase from back in chapter 6, where the accusers say to Stephen, they're changing the customs of Moses. And, of course, the answer is, you better believe they are. Namely, circumcision, for example. He says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they debated this. And in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 15, they give their decision. No, that's not true. You do not have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the redeemed community any longer. What Moses laid down as a condition for being part of the community and a sign of the covenant, we now are going to drop. The reason is not hard to come by. There are several problems with circumcision as the history of redemption makes a turn. History of redemption is turning and the church is no longer identified with any ethnic group called Israel. And therefore, that kind of sign which sets you off from another nation and makes it very difficult for them to come over is being changed. And baptism is the replacement for circumcision. Baptism is superior not only for that reason. It's easier to perform, but it's also performable on women. And men, which is highly significant, I believe. And here's another interesting thing. I'll stick this in as a parenthesis. The Reformed community generally 
equates baptism and circumcision and draws the inference that just because you've circumcised babies, you should baptize babies. Now, here we are, Baptist Church, and we don't do that. There's a very easy and simple reason. And this is on my front burner because my 11-year-old is carrying on a running debate at school with a, a little girl theologian from the Reformed community who's also 11 years old, who brings her arguments from her mom and dad, and Abraham brings his arguments from his mom and dad, and they, they argue about baptism at school every day. And her most recent argument, which she said would be unanswerable to him, was that since baptism replaces circumcision, therefore you should baptize babies just like you circumcise babies. Now, my, my response to that is this. If baptism has been brought in and a change has been wrought in the nature of the sign of the covenant, namely switching from circumcision to baptism and switching from just men to men and women, could it be that another change is also in the offing? Namely, you do it to people who are born of the spirit, not just born of the flesh. And then I showed him Romans 9, 8. The children of God are not the children of the flesh, but the children of promise. And therefore, yes, it is the parallel with circumcision in the Old Testament. But there are three changes, not just two. One change is you switch to baptism, not circumcision. Another change is you switch to men and women, not just men. And the third change is you do it after new birth, not after first birth. And that's very crucial in the New Covenant because the New Covenant people are defined not by Judaism but by the new birth. That's my basic rationale for being a Baptist. Close parenthesis. That's not in the sermon. <laughs> the second example after circumcision, this is much more brief, is chapter 10 of the book of Acts. What I'm illustrating here is how Luke knew that the apostolic witness was bringing about mosaic changes. Changes in the Mosaic customs. Acts chapter 10, here is Peter sitting on the roof and a sheet in a vision comes down full of animals, some of whom are unclean. You know, the Old Testament said, don't eat animals like fish. You don't have scales and don't have cloven hoofs and certain things like that. So you don't eat snake, turtle, catfish and so on. And the voice comes and says, rise, kill and eat. And, and Peter says... No, Lord, because I have never seen, I have never eaten anything unclean. And the voice comes back and says, don't call unclean what God has cleansed. Hmm. And then the door, knock at the door, and there's somebody inviting him to dinner at the Gentile's house, Cornelius. And so the message is real clear. These, these mosaic customs, these dietary laws are going to stand in the way of the new covenant people drawn from every people, tribe, and tongue. They were valuable to define the uniqueness of Israel among the nations. When that grace spills over to the nations and the nations are being gathered in, those aren't valid anymore. And so my answer is Luke did not disagree with Stephen and Jesus on this matter, he knew good and well that what the gospel was doing was bringing about both a destruction of the temple with its sacrificial system, its priesthood and its locus of glory 
and changing customs that made it hard for the gospel to spread among unreached peoples of the world. Now, last question then, why did he call these witnesses false witnesses? If they said everything true, well, they didn't say everything true. They said, in fact, that he is speaking, Stephen is speaking against the holy place and against the law, and that his words, verse 11, are blasphemous words against Moses and God. In other words, they heard the word, the temple will be destroyed, and they compute he's against the sacrifices and Moses and the God who inspired Moses, and it's blasphemy. That's the computation. And they go wrong. And you know why they go wrong? They cannot conceive of a destruction that consists in a fulfillment. That's what they can't conceive of. A destruction that consists in a fulfillment. Stephen did not destroy the temple the way the Romans were going to destroy the temple. Stephen destroyed the temple the way a homecoming from Saudi Arabia destroys the letter writing. Stephen destroys the temple or Christ destroys the temple the way the rising sun destroys the headlights and the street lamps. Here's another analogy, and this one's the most helpful one because it's even a biblical one. If the Messiah is coming, my hand is now the Messiah and it hasn't yet he hasn't yet come to earth. And this this is a light here. okay? And you could do this even with those lights, probably. But if this light is the light of God's affirmation and blessing upon the Messiah, on my hand. And as the Messiah is coming with the glory of God and the light shining upon him with approval, a shadow is cast upon the earth. And that's what we have in the temple and in the Mosaic regulations. We have a shadow of things to come, the Bible says. And as the Messiah comes... The shadow becomes smaller, and when the Messiah lands on the shadow, it's gone. He destroys the shadow. But he doesn't destroy the shadow because he didn't like the shape of the shadow. He doesn't destroy the shadow because of hatred for all that the shadow meant for millions of people with blessing for generations. That's not the sense in which the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the locus of the glory was destroyed. It was destroyed because the reality had come and the shadow was gone. And that's only threatening where you don't want the reality, where you love to play with the shadows. And even in the New Testament, there's a warning about those who have the form of religion. Don't know anything about power. They don't know anything about reality. And I just plead with you now as I close, receive the reality. Don't play with the forms, not even our forms, our forms here, lights, building, architects, dress, order of service. Don't get hung up on form. Go for the reality who is Christ, your sacrifice, Christ, your priest, Christ, the glory of God for you. And you don't have to go to church even to see that. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to see it. You don't have to lift one finger to get right with God. You just have to believe and rest and receive and know.
He's my sacrifice. He's my one high priest and mediator and advocate. In him, I have tasted the glory and the goodness of God. And I am satisfied. You don't have to go anywhere. Let's pray. We've gathered, Lord, not because we have to be here to earn anything from you. To twist your arm to be our sacrifice, our advocate, our glory. We're here because you're here. (laughs) And we want to be where you are. When your people gather in assembly, there is a special revelation of your glory. And we love it. We're good for each other. We strengthen and sharpen each other for your glory. We deepen each other's longing and each other's desires. And I just pray, oh God, that you would stand forth now as we close this service and draw people to pray with the teams who will be here at the front. I prayed at the beginning that uh, God would touch your needs wherever they are. And I just believe he's touched many And our teams of prayers here at the front, we just love you to come up and mention to them any need you have, physical, emotional, spiritual. And uh, they'd love to carry that to God with you and just support you and be a kind of deputy advocate underneath Jesus Christ, the priest. Father. Teach us now. Make us to love this truth, to be willing like Stephen to die for this truth, never to be like those who wanted to kill for this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.